Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 327. Today's topic is climate change and drought. Let's look at an article from the New York Times on February 14th, 2022. The article is by Henry Fountain. And the headline reads, How bad is the Western drought? Worst in 12 centuries, study finds. Fueled by climate change, the drought that started in 2000 is now the driest two decades since 800 AD. Says the drought which began in 2000 and has reduced water supplies, devastated farmers and ranchers, and helped fuel wildfires across the region had previously been considered the worst in 500 years according to researchers, but exceptional conditions in the summer of 2021, when two-thirds of the West was in extreme drought, really pushed it over the top, said A. Park Williams, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. So the drought started in 2000. It's now in its 23rd calendar year, the driest in 1,200 years, and they're getting this from tree ring data because the drier it is, the thinner the tree ring is going to be. And so they have tree rings going way back. And they've concluded that this is the driest 20-year period in 1,200 years. They say this drought is caused by climate change, which they by that they mean greenhouse gases and CO2 emissions. They say human-caused warming has played a major role. Quoting the article, it says, As human activities continue to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, temperatures are rising. As they do, the air is more capable of pulling water out of the soil, out of vegetation, out of crops, out of forests, Dr. Cole said. And this is Julie Cole, a climate scientist at the University of Michigan. So the focus here is the ability of warm air to pull moisture out of out of the soil, out of vegetation, out of crops, and out of forests. So I'm going to critique this article, or at least take issue with its conclusions on this basis. It defines climate change too narrowly. It lacks a proper analysis of the real causes of climate change and the real causes of drought, So it misses the problem and therefore misses the potential solutions. For one thing, what is climate and what is climate change? The definition of climate has changed in recent years. Time was when climate referred to regional differences. So the climate of Kentucky is different from the climate of Florida, which is different from the climate of Colorado, which is different from the climate of Hawaii, which is different from the climate of Alaska. But the word climate has come to mean changes in global average temperatures as a result of carbon dioxide emissions. So we're defining it much more narrowly than we used to with a focus on temperature, but we're not talking very much on, about changes in climate as changes in the amount of rainfall, changes in the amount of humidity, And we're talking about climate as if it is almost solely governed by greenhouse gases. And we're disregarding 
the impact of land use, the impact of what we do to the land, the impact of what we do to the forest, the impact of what we do to the soils. All this is largely disregarded in at least the rhetoric when the New York Times and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change talk about how we get climate change and therefore how we fix the problem or how we correct the problem. But notice that the big events which draw attention to the need to address climate change are all broken water cycles. Flooding is a broken water cycle, or at least it represents a broken relationship that we have with water and rainfall. We've got too much water running off the land and not enough soaking into the ground. Drought is also a broken water cycle because if we talk about humans causing drought, then what we're saying is that humans are doing things that cause it to rain less. So what are we doing to cause it to rain less? And is it solely a function of what comes out of our tailpipes or what we use to heat our homes? Or is it also a function of what we do with the land? Similarly, when we see wildfires, we are told that this is a, an impact of climate change, a function of climate change, a result of climate change. And it is, but what is causing the climate to change and how do we fix it? So let's look at some of the causes of drought. One at a time, we're going to talk about farming with irrigation, especially from when, when the irrigation is from irreplaceable aquifers. Number two, we're going to talk about excessive tillage, which destroys the quality of the soils as a cause of drought. And number three, we're going to talk about lack of biological diversity on the farm, which is a cause of drought. So item number one, what are three causes of drought that we can change? And if we do change, there will be so many fringe benefits from this. So number one cause of drought, not the number one most important, but the number one on my list, farming with irrigation. When the water comes from aquifers, that is those underground stores of water, when the water comes from aquifers that are being depleted and not renewed. So when you draw water up out of a well to water crops, this, that might be sustainable under some circumstances, but mainly in the western U.S. where the drought is occurring, the water is being drawn up out of the wells in a way that is not sustainable. It lowers the water table. When you lower the water table, you make the streams and rivers run drier, this kills the vegetation surrounding the streams and rivers, which in turn causes there to be less vegetation, which means less groundwater, less rainfall, and a hotter, drier surface. So you have a vicious cycle and a downward spiral leading to more drought. And all of this started because you decided to irrigate with water from aquifers without replacing the water in the aquifers. So what's the alternative to this? We get most of, our, most of our produce anyway from California. Most of that produce is watered 
with water from aquifers, but what's the alternative? So the alternative to getting water from an aquifer is to get more water from rainfall. So how do you get more water from rainfall? Well, you harvest the water where it falls. How do you harvest the water where it falls? One is to have more plant matter, which means stop removing so much plant matter, whether it's deforestation or mowing or you know, clearing fields to plant one single crop. So we need more, to harvest rainwater, we need more plant, plant matter, excuse me. To harvest more rainwater, we need healthier soils because a healthy soil is like a sponge which absorbs rainwater. There is nothing that has more capacity to absorb more rainwater than healthy soils. Healthy soils can absorb, you name it, six inches, 10 inches, 12 inches, uh, of rain in an hour. And you can test this by testing what's called the infiltration rate. When you pour a certain amount of water over a certain amount of ground and you time it and see how long it takes to soak in. When you increase the quality of your soils, you can make that, uh, that soil like a sponge. So how do you harvest more rainwater? More plant matter healthier soils. Number three, earthworks that make the water slow, spread, and soak into the ground. This is especially helpful when you have more slope, but earthworks that help the water slow, spread, and soak into the ground include terracing. It can include on-contour swales, which by definition are perpendicular to the flow of water, so they slow the water spread the water and give the water time to soak into the ground. You can also work the soil with a tool called a broad fork, which loosens it up without tearing it up. You can use small dams. All of this depends on the context, but you can use small dams. You can use a key line system, which was pioneered by an Australian named P.A. Yeomans and further developed by a Wisconsin farmer by the name of Mark Shepard. You can also restore historic wetlands. And there's a Kentuckian by the name of Tom Biebighauser who lives in Moorhead, Kentucky who has designed 6,000 wetlands and installed 2,600 of those 6,000 wetlands in his 30-something year career with the U.S. Forest Service. So whether it's terracing or on-contour swales or using a broad fork or employing small dams or the key line system or restoring historic wetlands, we can. these are ways that we can harvest rainwater, get more water from rainfall, so that we have to get less water from aquifers. And another alternative to growing our food in places that unsustainably mine water from the aquifers is to buy food locally from farmers you know and trust. We get lots and lots of rainfall here in Kentucky, usually over 40 inches per year. Insofar as you buy your food locally in Kentucky, then you know you're not buying your food from farms that unsustainably use water from aquifers or dams in California. But even places that get as little as six to 10 inches of rainfall per year can grow food sustainably with the water from rainfall. 
because it's not how much rain you get, it's how much you keep. It doesn't matter if you get 50 inches of rain per year if most of that flows, you know, most of that becomes runoff and doesn't soak into your ground. So there's lots of things we can do to grow food sustainably from harvested rainwater instead of irrigated water that comes from dams and aquifers. But we need to take our cues from farmers that are doing it well, doing it right, and that would include Joel Salatin in Virginia, that would include Will Harris in Georgia, that would include Mark Shepard in Wisconsin, and that would include Gabe Brown in North Dakota. If you're just joining me, this is Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 327 of The Climate Report. We are talking about what causes drought, because it would be a big mistake to attribute drought solely to uh, greenhouse gases, solely to carbon dioxide. We need to look at what else causes drought, and number two item, number one was growing food with water from irrigation from aquifers and dams. Number two is excessive tillage. Excessive tillage causes drought. And what we need to know is that healthy soil holds water. Healthy soil has a structure to it. The structure contains air pockets, and the air pockets are about 50% air and 50% water. No, excuse me, 25% air, 25% water, and then the other half is 45% minerals, sand, silt, and clay, and 5% organic matter. And it's that structure that enables soil to hold water. We destroy that structure with tillage. Tillage is optional. Tillage is something we do on a large scale, but it need not be done that way. So we need to know that healthy soil holds water. We need to know that we destroy healthy soil when we till too much ground. Tilling is roughly synonymous with plowing. We destroy healthy soil when we till too much ground when we use too many chemicals, when we leave the ground bare by not planting anything in between the cash crops. Uh, we destroy healthy soil when we plant monocultures instead of biologically diverse plant communities. So when we destroy the soil structure, we're destroying its ability to hold water, air, carbon, and soil biology like worms, grums, grubs, beetles, fungi, and microorganisms. So what's the alternative to this? The alternative to excessive tillage is to support the principles of soil health, to build healthy soils or buy our food from farmers that are building healthy soils using the five or six principles of soil health. One is avoiding tillage. Number two is avoiding chemical fertilizers. Number three is always have living roots in the ground. Instead of bare ground, always have living roots in the ground. Instead, half of the crop fields worldwide are uh, bare for about half the year. So any given point in time or throughout the year on average, about half 
of the crop fields are bare. This is not the way to build healthy soil. The way to build healthy soil is, among other things, to always have living roots in the ground because those living roots are injecting carbon into the ground. The carbon comes in the form of sugars, so plants take carbon dioxide from the air and 30% or more of that carbon that they then turn into sugar gets injected into the ground so as to be a primer for the soil biology. They, uh, the, the, the sugar attracts microorganisms and then other microorganisms to feed on those. And uh, fungi gets into the act, especially mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizal means myco means fungus, rhizal means roots. So mycorrhizal fungi are those fungi that are associated with plant roots. They are an extension of the plant roots. They serve to deliver nutrients to the plant. They serve to deliver water to the plant. They serve to be an important component of a living soil community that is able to absorb water when it does rain. That living soil community, if it's there when it does rain, then it's going to absorb a whole lot of water and is, is going to extend the period of time that you can, between rain events, it's going to extend the length of time that can pass before your plants start to die. So Walter Yenny says you can multiply by a factor of 10 the period of green growth in between rain events. So it might turn from 10 days into 100 days. If you have that living soil community that is capable of absorbing water when it does rain and making the best of it, as opposed to what? As opposed to what we have now where we till and till and till and we don't have any, our infiltration rates are very low. It's not unusual for water to be able to infiltrate or soak into the ground at a rate of no more than a half an inch per hour. If it takes an hour for a half an inch of rainfall to soak into the ground, then what you've got is a whole lot of runoff, a whole lot of flooding, and after the flood comes the drought because we have failed to hold water onto the land. So to have those soils that contain the fungi, to have those soils where the plants can inject their carbon into the ground and attract a whole community of microorganisms, we need to avoid tillage, avoid chemical fertilizers, avoid chemical pesticides, always have living roots in the ground. We need to have a, a diversity of plants, whether it's cover crops, whether it's pasture, whether it's cash crops. We need a diversity of crops because that diversity of crops, the diversity of plants, cultivates or stimulates a diversity of soil biology. And your diversity of plants should include perennials. We need uh, perennials, mean, perennial as opposed to annual. An annual is a plant that only lasts one year and then it dies and then it seeds and another generation occurs. Perennials means woody plants like trees and bushes are woody plants. There are also some perennial forbs and wildflowers, but we need more perennials so as to continue to support a, a rather permanent underground soil uh, community of life 
So it would be great if we could get more of our plant-based foods from tree, like you know, fruits and nuts. And I'm I'm trying to substitute nuts for bread. You know, all things in moderation, right? But I feel better about my impact when I'm eating nuts than I do when I'm eating bread. Another thing we need to do to avoid drought by cultivating good soil health is to incorporate animals into the environment. Incorporate animals into the farms that are raising our food. Now, if somebody chooses to be vegan or vegetarian, that's your choice. I respect that. But we need to understand that regenerative agriculture requires animals or animal products to be incorporated into the, the soil. So this brings us to item number three on how to prevent drought and what causes drought. What, what causes drought is monocultures and it's an annual food. We, you know, if there's corn, as far as the eye can see, that's a monoculture of annual plants. Soybeans, as far as the eye can see, that's a monoculture of annual plants. If you have a concentrated animal feeding operation, only cattle, that's a monoculture of cattle. Or if only pigs, that's a monoculture of pigs. Quite apart from the pollution issues that arise from these things, quite apart from the animal cruelty issues that arise from concentrated animal feeding operations, they are not biologically diverse. And that's one reason you have to pump the animals full of, you know, all kinds of medicines and vaccines and dewormers. It's because pathogens love a monoculture. So what does that have to do with drought? Well, let's look at, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you feed pigs or chickens or cattle? You're going to feed them some kind of grain, lots of corn. Pigs, chickens, and cattle in concentrated animal feeding operations eat lots and lots of corn and some soy products. So, you know, you're getting your, the, the animal food from corn. The corn is made with heavy tillage, usually and the heavy tillage and the lack of biological, biological diversity causes drought. Because drought is caused when the landscape, including the living landscape, does not contain or retain enough water. Biologically diverse systems can contain and retain water because water is life. Every organism contains water. And nothing contains water better than a community of organisms, otherwise known as an ecosystem. And the quality of an ecosystem is measured by its biological diversity. So what we've done today is we've separated the plants from the animals and the animals from the plants, thus diminishing biological diversity. We fertilize the plants with expensive polluting chemicals while the animals produce unmanageable quantities of waste which cause pollution. So Wendell Berry makes the following observation. Wendell Berry, Kentuckian author, poet, farmer, and critique critic of our farming system. He says, the genius of the American farm, the genius of American farm experts is well demonstrated here. In other words, where we have the plants and the animals separated from one another, the genius of American farm experts is very well demonstrated here. They can take a solution and divide it in neatly into two problems. In other words, 
if you have a small biologically diverse farm, you can use the animal manure to uh, feed the plants. And you can use plant products to feed the animals. And that system produces an abundance of food for people. But what we have now is that farmers can't use the manure because the manure is too far away and they don't own the animals that produce the manure. So you have to buy expensive chemical inputs for fertilizer. So Wendell Berry says we've taken one solution and turned it into two problems. So the solution to this is, is ecological farms, biologically diverse farms, which hold water when it rains instead of monocultures, which can't get rid of the water fast enough. And then they bring it in, when it rains, they drain it away when it, and, th and then when they need water, they get it from lots and lots and lots of irrigation. So I've said that a solution to drought is to have biologically diverse farms. One feature of most biologically diverse farms is going to be trees. So what we have now is farming which is a cause of deforestation. If you feel like you have to get rid of all the trees to raise a field of corn or sugarcane or uh, soybeans, then that's part of the problem because a, a biologically diverse farm, which includes trees and can include productive fruit trees, it can include trees for timber, but it's biologically diverse. And in these circumstances, you, you have a farmer who is able to market these products to a local clientele, which is willing to pay a premium because it's a quality product, it's tasty, it's local, it's sustainable. And the focus is having a diversity of products, a diversity of crops, a diversity of animals, a diversity of streams of income, so then you don't have to plow fence row to fence row. You don't have to get big or get out. American farm policy for decades has been plow fence row to fence row and get big or get out. We've sucked all the energy and vitality out of the land. We have deprived the land of its ability to capture rain when it falls. So let's say you have this biologically diverse farm. And uh, one of the things you can do on it is have your pigs uh, get the acorns when they fall from the oak tree. Oak trees have a tremendous capacity to capture rain when it falls, including the leaves. L let me read you this quote from my man, Doug Tallamy, who says, the water from a two inch downpour more than 54,000 gallons per acre, is captured almost entirely by an oak forest's leaf litter and the organic humus it creates. Litter and humus don't hold this water indefinitely, but they do corral it on site just long enough for it to seep into the ground, replenishing the water table on which so many of us depend. In areas with no leaf litter, the same two-inch rainstorm causes a flood. So are you going to have a flood or are you going to have the, the oak tree with its leaves capture the water and let it gently soak into the ground? If you have that oak tree, you're going to be doing your part to help avoid drought because drought happens when the rain gets away 
Drought happens when the land has been used and abused and chewed up and spit out, and that's all we've been doing, especially for the last 70 years. It does not have to be that way, but we have to get to where the land is being owned, controlled, and used by and for the people for the benefit of the people, not for the benefit of a few agribusiness corporations, which is exactly what we have now, and that is what the, the big commercial media outlets are not willing to tell you because they don't want to step on the toes of their sponsors. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. This has been the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host. Have a wonderful day.